Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On today's show, actress, comedian, and SNL star Chloe Fineman. The comedic genius discusses her masterful impressions. I'm that person who's like, my queen, you know? So I'm like, Natalie Portman, my queen. So unless I like find the thing that's funny enough and not, I just don't want to be mean to people I literally am obsessed with. Her Jewish identity. All the way through college even, it was like, you're either like Rachel McAdams or you're like Jewish. Working as a stand-up comedian. That's like my problematic relationship with comedy is like, I think later in life, I definitely pursued stand-up because I was like, oh, you know, this guy has a crush on is doing open mics. I can do that. And wigs. So wigs are like a really cool way to be like, I'm not me anymore. And I like that transformation and I love the like Kate Blanchett of it all. I love Kate Blanchetting, you know? Shut up, Evan. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm Evan Ross Katz and I am joined once again by my producer, Matt, aka Stormageddon. Matt, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I am currently staring out the window at Parvati, um, the cat that I've, I guess, adopted on some level. Um, and uh, she's kind of the the big thing going on in my life. I don't know if that's a good thing or a sad thing. Yeah, I think it's a little tough. I think the <laughs> focusing on um, important things in your life, even if it's a stray cat outside, is uh, clear to focusing through the trash fire of hell that is 2020. What a week, what a week, well, what a month, what a year, what a lifetime. Yeah, um, I will say I, I did get some feedback from people that were saying that I should not be feeding the cat. And mm. while I completely understand that, it's just like there's a very thin cat that comes around to my door every day and I can't not it's like she's going to be there so i'm feeding her. i feel like there's a little a jewishness in that like mm. we're both jewish and like mm-hmm. the need to feed and take care of completely like completely. all of that and it's like um <laughs> i just it, she comes around every morning and she like expects it now and so i understand it's like i've built in this expectation but i am happy to take on the responsibility so it's not as though i just feel like i am equipped to handle this and i want to do everything i can to make poverty's life's better um and i hope i am Anyway, but uh, a little bit of a hard right. Um, I was looking for topics for us to sort of uh, lead off the conversation with today. And I thought that we would be remiss not to discuss the hashtag Proud Boys. And this is sort of a viral moment that was happening last week. So I wanted to sort of first give some context and sort of like why we are talking about this. So last week, the Proud Boys 
hashtag sort of flooded the internet and it, be, it was pictures of what began as gay men kissing and devolved into gay men thirst trapping. So I thought we'd start by identifying what the Proud Boys are for those who do not know. The Proud Boys are a far-right, neo-fascist, and male-only organization that promotes and engages in political violence in the United States and Canada. We do not love to see it. So this story kicked off on October 1st when actor George Takai tweeted, I wonder if the BTS and TikTok kids can help LGBTs with this. What if gay guys took pictures of themselves making out with each other or doing very gay things and then tagged themselves with hashtag proud boys? I bet it would mess them up real bad. Hashtag reclaiming my shine. Two days later, on October 3rd, Takai tweeted, Look up what's trending now on hashtag Proud Boys. You're welcome, internet. Um, I generally tend to cringe at anyone who addresses, air quotes, the internet as though we are some sort of monolith. And I say that because it's because of the internet that organizations like the Proud Boys exist and propagate. Um, so the idea of like addressing the internet as though we are all just like this entity out there that like that one can, you know, that you're on some sort of balcony speaking out like Ava Perone to the, you know, on the <laughs> Casa Rosada. It's just like that. That's not exactly how it works. That's a conversation for another day. So the hashtag then became flooded with pictures of gay men. Among them were Andy Cohen, who posted a picture with he and his bestie restaurateur Bruce Bozzi, accompanied with the hashtag Proud Boys. Queer Eye star Bobby Burke did the same, posting a photo of he and his husband Dewey Doe, as did Matt Bomer, who posted a group photo of the cast of his new film Boys in the Band, accompanied with the hashtag. This in addition to thousands of others, individuals, and couples who joined in on the trend. So then came the headlines, like this one in the Washington Post on October 7th. The Proud Boys were emboldened by Trump's words. Then LGBTQ plus couples reclaimed the group's hashtag. So that's the what. Yeah. I want to read a tweet from friend of the pod, Ben O'Keefe, shout out to Ben, in response to all of this Michigas. He wrote, quote, so there are a bunch of white gays tweeting with the hashtag Proud Boys to, quote, reclaim it. Yuck. Y'all are white. Proud Boys are white supremacists. This is not yours to reclaim. Mm. And therein lies what I see as the biggest problem here. Are you familiar with the Streisand method? Excuse me. <laughs> the Kaminsky method. Sorry. Are you familiar with the Streisand effect? I am, yeah. I mean, I know it on a base level. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but for sure, yeah. So for those that don't know, the Streisand effect, and you should definitely Wikipedia this as it's a really fun deep dive, um, but it's basically <laughs> the idea that by telling people not to look at something, you're actually generating more intrigue about something that may have never been looked upon in the first place. And this feels like textbook Streisand effect to me. Yeah. It also feels very on brand with gay men, namely white gay men, to not only insert themselves in a narrative, but to do it with the underlying goal of seeking out attention towards themselves or yep. ourselves. I don't want to completely absolve myself from the narrative. Right. And I get it. Takai wanted to capitalize on gay men's love of attention seeking and affirmation and thought, why not redirect that noise towards drowning out the real Proud Boys? The issue is that gay white men are not exonerated from and often benefit from white supremacy. So again, going back to Ben's tweet, it's not our hashtag to reclaim. And it's really gone beyond a hashtag. I noticed, for instance, this guy, and we're going to name names because that's what we do here. Um, his name is 
John Equality Duff. He posted a selfie of him sitting on his heels naked with the caption, Proud Boy Tings. And so he's not even trying to overtake the hashtag, just wanting to jump on the Proud Boys bandwagon. Proud Boys, again, a white supremacist organization. And so that to me is like, an example of the dissonance here between this effort to sort of drown out the Proud Boys hashtag, but then you have people just straight up taking the term Proud Boys and proudly taking on that moniker. I just don't get it. And, and also it's like without context, it appears like a bunch of gay men, many of whom are white, are identifying with a group of white nationalists, which head scratching. I get the intention, but I also see it as remarkably misguided. Like, what's next? We're going to start posting selfies with hashtag neo-Nazi? Like, I I think it's a great example of why any activism, and I use air quotes because I realize that this is not real activism, but any effort towards adopting activist practices, let's say, is it's inherently in conflict with posting selfies. Unless, and this is the big caveat, there comes like an action item. And I think that was like really what was missing from all of this because I think a big piece of this that remains unsettled is the idea of like, okay, so the hashtag was in theory overtaken with a bunch of pictures of gay men. Does that, in George Takai and anyone else taking part in all this, is it, it, like, what, do, so, so let's say we've drowned out the hashtag the Proud Boys themselves still exist. They're in no way delegitimized or disempowered by this. Um, it reminded me of the black squares that popped up. I was just going to mention that. Yeah, yeah, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. What I was seeing as a big critique coming out of that was like, it's an act without an action. And it's not to say that people, I'm not saying any, and you know, I have friends and, and there are going to be people listening to this podcast that posted hashtag Proud Boys with their pictures of themselves. And I'm not, shitting on that action i you know you use your social however you see fit but i do think it's worth sort of scrutinizing particularly for those people that don't come with the context of this it's like you just open up social media and here's a bunch of people identifying that's what that's what it seems as proud boys it's like i just i yeah and you know i'm gonna be honest like i i think it's whack i think it's embarrassing i hate that this generated so many headlines and that in my mind, it's like so many gay men took the bait on this. And I kind of think it's like the fly on Mike Pence's corpse discourse. I think it's very telling about people's desire to jump on bandwagon before really taking a good hard look at the bandwagon they're jumping on. So that's sort of my thoughts. I I, I, I want to get your thoughts, obviously, but I also want to say quickly, it's like I read a lot of the DMs from people on Instagram that are vehemently in disagreement with me and talking about that like language must be reclaimed and that this is a sends a powerful message about you know the power of gay men's voices and drowning out white supremacy i don't get it i don't get it but i obviously i want to make space for disagreement and, and for conversation so i invite you know larger conversations about this i'm not saying that my opinion about it is de facto but i think it's whack anyway matt what are your thoughts about this so i mean it's complicated right like first of all george takai uh takai i never know how to say george's last name but he is a famous gay man you know he of course most famously known for star trek but has done so many incredible things um, with his platform since so i know just the kind of person he is based on how I see him in the internet space, that he's trying to do the right thing. He wants to rally folks to support each other. And he's not a white man. He's Japanese. You know, 
But I think even if your heart's in the right place, it's very easy for things to get out of hand or especially on the Internet for things to be taken in a strange direction. I think it is with all things, white men tend to be the loudest and most obnoxious. And I, as a white man, acknowledge that and the privilege I get from it. And I think that many people's hearts might have been the right place, but I'm inclined to agree with you. Like, I think that, first of all, We've taken social justice on the internet to mean that's all you need to do. And like, I get that most people are afraid to be outside and can't do other things, but there are places your money can go. There are places that your time can go, even online, that's not social media. And now that, not to say that social media activism is not important, because it is. I think, I think if you have a platform, especially if you have any privilege, boosting the voices of those who don't have that privilege is important all the time, especially if they know what they're talking about. But I think trying to reclaim a hashtag is pointless because the hashtag doesn't change. It's the same hashtag like you were saying. And I think more importantly, you're now part of that hashtag. And so I think more, even more beyond that, like we've been dealing with loud fascists in this country for a while now. They've always been there, but they are more emboldened now. They don't care. I really don't think, like, if we take the ignorance of our own president as an example, who lies constantly and is unfazed by people calling him out on his lies, I have a strong feeling that most people like him will also not care and yeah. will still go about their business, still do their thing. Like, this doesn't affect the Proud Boys as a group, as you were saying. And I think that's the biggest thing about this. If there was some kind of action to donate to groups working against the Proud Boys or, you know, a donation link for various bail projects, like with this hashtag, that would be different. Totally. And I think it's also worth underlining once more that like LGBTQ plus people can be white supremacists. And so yes. this Proud Boys organization is not an anti LGBTQ plus organization in which we're trying to overtake the hashtag to say we are out here in force. There's just there's a Venn diagram here that just feels a little bit again. It's like there's a little bit of brain worms going on because it's like, again, going back to the Ben, it's not our hashtag to reclaim because we are not exonerated from white supremacy as white lgbtq plus individuals um i wanted to make one other point about like george takai um because he is kind of like has like that internet grandfather like sort of persona and on yeah. october 7th he just tweeted in the end pence will only say that black flies matter and I saw a lot of like variants of this very racist joke going around yeah. on social media. Um, we also had a recent incident with one of the Real Housewives of Orange County, Kelly Dodd, who wore a hat that said drunk wives matter. And just in the case of Takai, it sort of just shows you that to your point, it's like he I think that he is a well-intended person just trying to like navigate the Internet. But. I think that you, you sort of see in these moments that it's like, okay, I, 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 first of all, I find that statement, just anything that's sort of trying to co-opt the Black Lives Matter yeah. movement, even in a joking fashion, uh, there's no punchline there. I think it's just, uh, it's a, it's very low hanging fruit. And, and I, I just don't understand it, this, that to me struck me very similar to the Proud Boys hashtag of like, he's just kind of trying to do the base um, effort to seek out retweets. It's kind of like 
again, so much of the, I think the, the Mike Pence fly discourse on the internet was a particularly interesting moment just because you saw people resort to that base humor because in real time it was being so rewarded because Twitter was loving Mike Pence fly discourse. So if you, if you contributed to the discourse, you were going to be, you know, air quotes upvoted whatever right. you know retweeted it blah 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 and you know that black flies matter tweet of george takai's has at present while we're recording this sixty-two thousand likes and i just wonder do those sixty-two thousand people sort of realize there's not a joke it's, it's just yeah. not a joke to be made so anyway i'm not a big fan of george takai on takai takai on twitter um Fair. But more than anything, I, I feel like the fact that this Proud Boys hashtag did take off in the way that it did, and it should be noted, I mean, like, there are thousands of instances of both LGBT, of couples, LGBTQ, mostly gay uh, couples, um, bi couples, and uh, just selfies. But then also it's like you have people like the actor Army Hammer from Call Me By Your Name, um, uh controversial figure in the you know because i think gay people we often thirst for people like army hammer <laughs> and he has played gay in call me by your name but for for our understanding army hammer is straight but just loves the gays and you know there's lots of conversations about gay baiting topic for yeah. another day but army tweeted something along the lines of like saying like isn't it so awesome like um gay uh gay porn stars have overtaken the proud boys hashtag and it's like no, like again, it's like because there was no organizing behind this quote unquote effort. It's like some people think this was gay porn stars. Some people saw this as an opportunity for gay couples to post pictures of them kissing. Others, like that equality person earlier, was just like, I'm just going to post a picture of me naked. It's just there was no sort of like effort to unify in any sense and to figure yeah. out what are we trying to say. It's like if you're trying to drown out noise, fair. But if you really achieve your effort, which should be you're silencing them, the question then becomes, okay, so what do you want to say? And yeah. that was the part of this that really felt like it was missing to me. And yeah, I just, uh, I'm endlessly boggled by the the ways in which gay people collectively, sometimes myself included, again, I don't want to exonerate myself, but the ways in which we insert ourselves into narratives and even in effort sometimes of thinking, oh, well, we're making fun of this. We're pointing at it and laughing. But the question is, again, to the Streisand effect thing, it's like, is it better to just ignore these things than to point and laugh? It's often the question of like, when people quote tweet Trump, Yeah, it's like you are adding to his, you are bolstering the algorithm in yep. some sense. And it's like, the question is like, is it is there a value in pointing and laughing or is it better just to say, ignore it? Um, it will become disempowered by the lack of um, attention that it's getting. Anyway, I really want to hear from people about this. Going to use this as an opportunity to plug the Patreon just to say that on this week's Patreon episode, I do a much deeper dive into this subject to sort of get into the why I think it is that gay men, predominantly white gay men, step into this sort of shit sometimes anyway so it's patreon.com slash shut up evan and once again just want to give a shout out to our patreon subscribers thank you so much doing a little bit of a 180 as we do <laughs> um 
On this week's episode, I am proud, just proud, to have the very lovely and the very talented and the very funny Chloe Feynman on the show. Um, many of you know her from SNL, but it's really, I really valued the opportunity to like get to know her a bit more and particular to sort of have some conversations about Jewish identity, just because I really... I, I value the opportunity to discuss Judaism with Jewish people. It's something that we did a little bit in season one with Shoshana Bean and with Isaac Mizrahi, and I hope to do more with Jewish guests. But it's really fun to um, go back and forth with her. And we actually have, beyond our Judaism, it's like we're also both Tish alumni, um, so we connected on that level. But for those of you that don't know Chloe, you'll you'll get to know her now. But I, I invite anyone, um, after listening to this, definitely go on Chloe's Instagram to check out some of her impressions, but also just SNL. Um, she's consistently bringing... She is, like, one of my absolute favorite impressionists. And I just want to say, like, looking at um, Jim Carrey's, like, Biden impression, I just was like, there's... Chloe is... <laughs> Chloe is giving, not everyone is great at impressions. And I also feel like there's a little bit of like, we've become accustomed to mediocrity with our impressions because it's like, mm -hmm. we're like, oh, well, if they just hit the bits, we're less, we scrutinize less sort of like the voice and, and the gesticulating and sort of the, the gestures and everything. And I think Chloe is someone who like masters all sides of an impression. And I think that um, she really is in a league of her own. So without any further ado, um, let's turn it over to the great Chloe Feynman. All right, let's do it. She is a featured player on Saturday Night Live, known for segments on Weekend Update and for sketches including Masterclass, Quarantine Edition, and Uli's Fashion Vlog. She has appeared on Mozart in the Jungle, Jane the Virgin, Search Party, and most memorably as Waiter One on Grownish. On Instagram, a platform where you need to be following her as though you aren't, she is known for a breadth of hilarious sketches and impressions, which include and are not limited to Timothy Chalamet, Britney Spears, Dr. Deborah Burks, Meryl Streep, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Drew Barrymore, Marianne Williamson, and last, but certainly not least, Sarah Michelle Gellar. An accomplished comedian, she's performed on the stages with the Groundlings and Upright Citizens Brigade. She's also the proud owner of over 100 wigs. She is irreverent, she's quirky, she is glamorous, she is smart as fuck, she's researched, she's hilarious. She is the great Chloe Feynman. Chloe, thank you so much. Thank you. Waiter number one, my greatest role. I think it was actually cut from Grownish. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, then consider this an homage to what could have been a really prolific part. It really could have. Before I ask how you're doing, I want to ask how your hair is doing because People Magazine recently ran a story. SNL's Chloe Feynman changed her hair color 15 times during quarantine. Quote, this is psychotic. To be quoted, this is psychotic, is so such an honor because that is my language. The amount of DMs of people being like, do not say the word psychotic unless you actually are psychotic. And then I had to defend myself as like, yeah, I am psychotic. Like, it's my own diagnosis. Yeah. Fully insane that that is the world we're living in where there's like no celebrity news. Like no one's walking on the street to photograph, but they're like, she, it was a 15 second Instagram story as a joke. But, I mean, it's an honor to be in people. Truly. I mean, it's people. Hello. But is it weird now to be at a point in your career when something like a 15-second Instagram story can warrant a headline on people? Absolutely. I think a part of me still finds it so hilarious. Like, my, I had a fake wedding, which people also brought up with my fiancé, Casey Brown, who is... Uh, let's just who is not my fiance and um, we Breaking are both news here. equally attracted to Harry Styles so if that <laughs> gives it away um, but like that was with Drew Drogi who's like one of my comedy heroes 
we were literally just trying to do a comedy sketch on Instagram Live when the pandemic started, and all these publications, like the Daily Mail, were like, "She's engaged," and then. <laughs> Like Colin Jost was like, are you engaged? And I was like, this is crazy. Yeah, it's like, it's got to be very flattering that they want to write about you. But at the same time, it just, it goes to show you that because there's no, so little news actually happening, that stories are being mined from social media. And and obviously I think a lot of things that are comedy are taken in earnest. And uh, totally. those are the resulting headlines. But I mean, in all yeah. seriousness, how is your hair? Um, It's great. I actually really like it. It's like a French bob. It's the color I like. To be clear, I didn't like box dye it 16 times. I used color depositing conditioners. Much um, but I still overdo my hair all the time. That's just my men- It was like a metaphor for my mental state in the pandemic. I feel that. Three of your latest impressions, Sarah Michelle Geller, Drew Barrymore, and Catherine Zeta-Jones have drawn the attention, excuse me, not just drawn the attention of praise from and reposts by the ladies themselves. <laughs> and like, these are three heavy, heavy hitters. I know yeah. you've done your Drew Barrymore impression for quite some time now. Hi, you guys. It's Drew. You know, I'm here in Bushwick. I'm taking in gorgeous street art for Flower Beauty and possibly a new collab with Crocs. What is it like to have the people that you are doing impressions of not only take notice, but kind of co-sign them? I mean, I drop my phone and I take like three laps and it's the biggest compliment in the world. I am not deep. You said I was smart in this introduction, but like I have read, I would just like read magazines. Like I like read Glamour magazine instead of like doing homework. That sounds so ditzy, I don't care. I love celebrity culture. Like those women are my icons. Catherine Zeta-Jones in Chicago is like the greatest performance of all time. So yeah, just have these people I've been like ooing and aahing at be like, yes, is very, very nice. Well, it's arrived. The perfect smoky eye eye pencil. Casa Zeta-Jones. What I love in particular about these impressions, but specifically those three, they're not only funny because of your the accuracy of the impression, but also the things you're saying are funny. And so I kind of think there's a one-two punch to the comedy. But also in all three of those instances, you picked three people who are famous for acting, but who have since subsequently created sort of brands um, that yes. their identity is a part of. And so what yes. you're poking fun at, I, and, and thankfully all three of them have a sense of humor about it, is this idea that they have like a, persona that is maybe who they are i mean i mean i hope my god i hope all three of them are like that me too particularly incredible sarah michelle geller that sign off smg tip of the day a banana has 98 calories a glass of prosecco 45 your choice coin tip that was huge it is like so fascinating the these like iconic actresses taking space on Instagram as they rightfully should. And I think they do it in this, it's just like so revealing. I feel like it's putting all those gossip magazines out of business. Cause it's like all you, I just want to watch like Jennifer Garner on a farm. Like her, in, I think I just have obsessions now with their, in, Jennifer Garner's Instagram, gotta do that. We're noting that. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> Please. Natalie Portman cooking, like the amount of people cooking, the cooking shows, Cameron Diaz, like making a margarita. It's just like, this world and you're like, whoa. 
And it's it incredible, takes, especially if you yeah. think about, you know, five or 10 years ago when actors were kind of their primary outlet of getting to know them happened on talk shows. And so that's totally. why outlets like David Letterman were so important because they could come on and share the stories that we're now seeing on Instagram. So it used totally. to be that Sarah Michelle Gellar would go on a Jay Leno and share the story of I'm having to teach my kids during quarantine. They would, I guess mm -hmm. she would share She'd it. She'd literally that. do her corn tips. Exactly. And now <laughs> yeah. we get them. And thank God. I just love it's, it's very affirming as a Sarah Michelle Gellar super fan to see her being in on the joke because it, it once again affirms my love. I love people that can laugh at themselves. It's my favorite quality in a person. And totally. so in her instance, but in so many of these instances, I just think that's so cool. I'm reminded of other SNL impressionists like Gilda Radner and Sherry O'Terry, who both did incredible Barbara Walters impressions yes. that took Barbara Walters well over a decade to come around on. I remember at the time she took great offense to these incredible impressions. And I think there's something there, a specificity to what you are poking fun at that allows these people to find humor in it as well. Is that something you think about when you decide who to do impre an impression of? Definitely. I think there are people I'm like, more scared to do uh, maybe I like know that I if sometimes if I like kind of know it's not that I know a ton of famous people if or if I've like crossed paths enough with them like uh, my boyfriend's really close with Rami Youssef and he's like do me do me and then I feel like the pressure's so high because uh we hang out very seldomly well no occasionally I was just at his house you're best friends with him we're like literally best friends yeah. um but yeah I think that and then like like someone, I, it is this thing of like, I'm that person who's like my queen, you know? So I'm like Natalie Portman, my queen. So unless I like find the thing that's funny enough and not, I just don't want to be mean to people I literally am obsessed with. And I think like Drew Barrymore, I spent a really long time trying to make it not mean. Cause I know like I read all, I read her, I'm just a fan. And she'd be like, I know I like have a list, get over it. And I didn't want like to like be, have her be like, okay. But I think, yeah, I, I like show it to a couple people to be like, is this mean? Is this okay? Is there ever a moment when you are seeing, you know, because as you said, you're a big fan of celebrities. I am too. When yeah. you start to see like the nugget of, okay, this is someone worthy of impression because there are some people that, have personalities like the earnestness of their personality really doesn't allow for humor to be mined from yeah. but it's like and i and i love who you choose to do so much because specifically going back to drew sarah and Catherine, it's like there's just the joke is waiting to be made and you just were the first person to make it is there sort of a threshold or sort of a nugget that you see that says okay there's comedy to be mined yeah i mean Definitely. I, the dumb answer, which I hate to say, is like my background was like theater. Like I wanted to be a Meryl Streep. I went to Tish. I did like classical same. theater. Same, same, same. Oh, yes. I saw the meme. I saw the meme. <laughs> Movement. And yes, the meme. I, yes, I'm a, that's like the best meme ever. But I think like coming from such a pretentious acting school, like I think I was always making fun of like famous that doesn't or like we, like the teachers would always be like you know they're not on voice they they would like look down on these like very successful famous people as if they like knew something well there is something about what i noticed i was like watching your meryl streep video recently it's an older video of yours and yeah. you kind of go in and out of chloe and then you kind of subtly just shift into meryl Finding 
Meryl Streep um, glasses, but I don't think these are, they're okay, right? Uh, and one thing that I took away from watching that was like, it's almost as though you're sort of showing that all of the character work that so many acting teachers teach kind of is unnecessary if you're just able to like fall into it. And yes. I think that moment, you watch you and it's, you're Meryl, you are Meryl. Two seconds later, and then you're back to Chloe. And it's so believable. And like, yes, you can call it an impression, but you can also just call it good acting. Thanks. My experience at Tish was so much of like, don't talk this way. You sound like you're a ditzy girl. You're from Cal. Like I talked a lot. Like I, I literally talked like Britney Spears. I think that's why that impression comes so easily. I found a video of me at like 14 and I'm like, Hey, yeah. Uh, I'm like side and tried to like sound hot all the time. So like that stuff being beaten out of me, I think makes me like alert to like little isms that other people do because I had so very many. <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned Tish. I went to Playwrights Horizons Theater School. Wow, respect. Oh, wow, okay. Respect. Um, what, what studio were you in? I was at Adler. Okay. You know, I have to say, of all of the studios, that was the one that I feel like I had the least impression of, like, what a Adler student was like. Mm-hmm. What was there? What, I mean, I obviously know it's its own philosophy of acting. Uh, what was your experience of Stella Adler? shockingly straight like there were a lot of very attractive straight men Mm. and I dated a lot of I dated any I could like get my hands on so you were Uh, attracted to other actors you weren't one of those people that's like repelled by fellow thespians okay no no now I'm dating like a comedy writer guy and it's 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 it works it's a really good balance but I definitely was always like I want to date that guy who's like in a scarf and a blazer and like kind of like whispering to himself on the street with a cigarette. Like, I want Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> That sounds right. Um, I want to go back a little bit to your early life. I want to get into your Jewish identity. I spoke at length about this with two of my guests from season one, Isaac Mizrahi and Shoshana Bean. And I was really compelled in hearing Jewish people speak about their Judaism. It's just not something I think famous, or not something I've heard famous people talk about a lot. It's new. It's it's very new. new. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I remember like, and speaking of like acting, um, one of the like early acting cults I joined in LA was like this woman who would always be like, Hollywood is run by Jewish men who refuse to cast Jewish women. And it was like her whole thing. And she'd tell everybody to get nose jobs. And it was so problematic. Wow. But I do feel like it's nice that people embrace it. Yeah. And you know, I don't think it's revelatory for Jewish people to talk about their Jewish identity. And yet I think there's something in hearing younger Jewish people sort of talk about the ways in which I know for me personally, I have always for so long defined myself by my gayness. Like that was my thing. And I think a few years ago, I had this moment in which I was like, I'm Jewish and that can be a big part of my identity if I so choose. So I'm curious, I know you went to Jewish day camp growing up, same. I'm curious what role Judaism has played both in your early life and then your life today? Great question. My Judaism is like 99% of my personality. Like I went to public school in Berkeley, California. So our Jewish is like hippie Jewish and very much like a Jill Soloway film meets like Lonely Island, hippie Jew. And in elementary school, like the funny, I know it's a stereotype, but I don't care. The funniest girls were Jewish. 
and then the other non-Jewish girls did dance. And so I was kind of torn between like, am I a dancer or a funny? Mm. And then I went to Hebrew school with my best friends at the time and I found out you could eat unlimited pizza. And I had like a hippie mom who was like, no. And so I literally like became Jewish to like eat pizza with my mom. Not that totally makes sense. So did you feel like early on, it was sort of like you were either the funny girl or the girl that danced? Did you feel like there was sort of like, it couldn't be both? Yeah, definitely. Like all the way through college, even it was like, you're either like act, you're either like Rachel McAdams or you're like Jewish. And <laughs> You know, and I kind of was like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was like, I like looking, I, you know, I, I, but I am Jewish. And I yeah. think for me, like my best friends growing up were so like unapologetically loud and crazy. Yeah, just like boobs out, whatever. And I think we were allowed to just be really like wild and uninhibited, which maybe isn't like a Jewish thing, but that was my Jewish, like chaotic and loud. You know, one of the things I really love about the sort of ident your identity on Instagram is that we get both this like very like your Timothy Chalamet impression for instance that's very unglamorous but then we have you doing fashion campaigns on the other side <laughs> and I like that you are sort of giving us so much range because I think it's sort of I mean I'm not saying there, there's never been a beautiful comedian before of course there have been many but I like the idea that you can be beautiful and be funny and that it doesn't have to be one or the other. Yeah, yeah. I always like, my sister's a painter and she's always like, Prince didn't define himself. And I'm like, yeah. So that's <laughs> where a lot of that comes from. But yeah, like Jewish camp also, we, this is so silly. For the Jews, we had a thing called kumzitz at day camp, which was like, we, it was sketch comedy that the campers or the counselors would do first thing in the morning while everyone got sunscreen on them. And I think that was where I first realized I could like make people laugh. Tell me more about this, because I'm always really intrigued when I talk to funny people. I know we had Cola Scola on in season one, and this was something I was really interested in with Cole too. That first notion or like the first sense of affirmation that you have what I would consider, I would call the funny gene or like the funny bug. Like I think certain people have it, other people do not. It is what it is. And, and I, obviously you certainly have it. When did you first get the sense? Was it camp? And was there a specific moment when you were like, wait a minute, like record scratch? Yeah, there's two memories that stick out. We were on an overnight in the woods in Berkeley, what a do. And my best friend and I for the talent show were like, let's put macaroon. I don't remember what our brilliant sketch idea was. At the time it was like when Mars attacks and like men in black were out. So I think our imagination was like, I don't know. I was like an alien woman and I put, I put a black garbage bag and I filled it with like hot macaroni and cheese. And somehow I was like, my butt's so funny. And then I realized like I could play different characters at, at camp and everyone would find it funny. And then boys would laugh. And I think like that's like my problematic relationship with comedy is like, I think later in life, I definitely pursued stand-up because I was like, oh, you know, this guy has a crush on is doing open mics. I can do that, you know. Can you say more about that? I'm really intrigued by this notion of the problematic side of yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think like in a good way, like I, when I graduated, tish, I was like, I'm going to do the doll's house and and then I was like, maybe I'll do like a year in LA and then I'll go to Juilliard or like go to Yale and do be where I should be. And then I, but I always was like attracted to funny guys. My dad's really funny, problematic, but she needs somebody like her dad. Um, <laughs> gotta find my dad in a new man. Uh, <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I was, I was like familiar guys or funny guys. 
and someone I grew up with in the Bay Area was like getting into stand up and I was like obsessed with him. So I followed him to open mics. And then, yeah, it was kind of like, I'll do that to impress him. And then Instagram in the early days was he lived in New York and I was in LA. And I was like, if I make these funny, weird videos, he'll like want to fuck me. Mm. And um, that was part of the journey. Did it work? Yeah, 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 definitely. Hey, speaking of your Judaism, your first appearance on SNL was you playing one-time Democratic presidential contender Marianne Williamson, herself mm-hmm. a Jew. I didn't yes. know that. I hadn't. I, I don't know. And then yeah. when I found it out, I, I like, I knew her right away. Konnichiwa, girlfriend. Here's how I will impeach Donald Trump. I will trap his soul inside this crystal, which I should warn you is also a yoni egg. So this election vote for magic. Good morning. Do you remember what it felt like in the hours and moments leading up to that show? I imagine the adrenaline had to be rushing big time. Totally. Like the way the show works is sometimes you know ahead of time what is happening. But in that case, it was like Thursday. And I saw on and there's a wig room. That's awesome. And they like will list who's playing what. And then I... That I like looked and I saw Larry David and Jewish girl. I was like, ah! Ah! you know, and I was like, oh my God, he's here. And then I saw my name, Marion Williamson, and like no one had told me. I just saw it on a wall and I was like, what? And then the wig lady's like, oh yeah, you're playing Marion Williamson. And so I like went into panic mode and then I always like do it a million times and send it to like a couple of my best friends for notes. (laughs) So in that process, because I'm just really interested in like the art form of impression, because I have a great amount of respect for impression, especially how you do it. When they're sending you those notes, can you give me an example of like what feedback you would get back and and how you would recalibrate the performance based off of that? Yeah. Well, like Marion Williamson was kind of a dream come true because I had done it on my Instagram because when I found out she was Jewish, I was like, oh, she's like one of my aunts. I have like boo, I, I, my family's like Jew boo city. So like new age Judaism is like, I'm, I'm composed of it in a big way. Now, the most important part about my campaign is that I don't believe in money. And here's why. Money is a part of a collective hate consciousness that is ruining this government and ruining this country as a whole because it funds big pharmaceutical companies and I don't believe in that, girlfriend. I don't even need to put my attention on it. I don't believe in the physical universe, I believe in the spiritual. Which is why I don't need one million dollars. I don't need two million dollars. Heck, girlfriend, I don't even need three billion dollars. What I need is for you to set an intention. So, yeah, I just thought, like, my fun, and I thought she had, like, a Broadway kind of, she has, like, a funky sex appeal to her. So then when I got the script, I'd, like, practice it. And then a lot of it's just, like, acting notes for me. Because I do think, like, what I when I think of an impression, like, yes, it's an impression, but it's also kind of, like, a, its own character in a way. I dove deep into the annals of your Instagram back Ooh, to annals. 24. Yeah, right? Oh, I love it. Just what a great word. What a great word. Uh, back to 2014 and 2015. And I was really struck in the best way by how little has changed. You know, you loved, do you, first of all, you've always loved the platform of Instagram, which I love so much because. I think people forget that like even five years ago, it just wasn't the viral space that it is now. It was much more of, it was much more personal and it was much more for your small network of people to see. But I encourage anyone, if you're okay with me encouraging them to really go back. You have so many funny videos. 
so weird. It reminded me of like old Cola Scola work that I love so much in just that it's so uninhibited in its humor. It's really wonderful. When you first started uploading those videos back then, without the built-in virality that comes now, what was the goal? What were you sort of wanting to do with that platform? So I was in New York for a while and then I like moved home for a year in the Bay Area and drove my parents crazy. And then when I finally moved to LA in, I think it was 2014, I saw John Early and Kate Berlant performed for the first time and discovered Cola Scola. And so you say that's like the highest compliment. They're my, my heroes. So seeing them perform was the first time I was like, cause I think they're such good, incredible performers and like actor, in addition to being funny, like John is like a force of, I don't know where he comes from. He's like, Oh yeah. But I think like I saw them and I just haven't laughed that hard in my life. And then Instagram initially, so it came out in San Francisco, where I'm from, and my younger sister's a painter. And when Instagram first launched, it was very like Christian. There were a lot of these like Christian influencers and my sister did photos and art. And so she kind of like hung out with these, like Jesus, they like take a picture of San Francisco, like fog and then write like a quote. And then, but because they had like, a, they were like amassing followers from like Jesus stuff. And then Instagram featured my younger sister in like 2013 or 2012 and then she became the talk of the family and it was like emma in our instagram oh my god she has 50,000 followers oh my god and i was so fucking jealous because she was this like well-to-do painter and she was selling all her stuff and so like initially the impulse was like as a competitive sister to like get attention from my family <laughs> did it work totally yeah and now yeah and i think it's kind of been nice because she definitely like does the Instagram thing and we've we've like had the same journey with it like in both in like creative fields but yeah I think a lot of it was just like trying to find my voice and have fun and make my close friends laugh and then I think it was around I mean around that time you sort of started sprinkling in some celebrity impressions do you remember the first impression that you did that you posted that you got some attention over yeah technically not a celebrity impression but in my world, it is. My um, NYU acting teacher that was like at the groundlings for one of the like levels because improv's got to have levels. It's mm. just like the vow. It's our Nexium cult. We had to like do an impression of, or you do a teacher as a character. And then I literally just did like a verbatim impression of my favorite acting teacher at NYU. I love it. And then what, and then at that point, did you feel like, okay, I just want to, I want to show people my range and show off more and more impressions because there's just, there's so many good ones from several years ago. Like for instance, I thought that the latest Drew Barrymore was your first time doing her. Lo and behold, I found a video from several years ago and I love that fucking video, by the way. But you know, you were doing these impressions a long time ago. Now, because you're a Chloe Fineman star of SNL, celebrity you can get attention for as you said earlier you dye your hair and you can get a people magazine story but back then you can post an impression and the celebrity is probably not going to see it was it different then when you were sort of just yes. posted? yeah i think initially like as a girl in la open mics were like because i'm me and i'm just a little whore a little dirty whore the open mic situation in la was all these like hot guys in dickies and I think I couldn't like just do comedy because I was always trying to like look a little cute and like make so-and-so laugh. And I treated it like a like a club of dating, which is, it's just who I am. I'm sorry. I like, I, I find people attractive. So 
with the impression stuff, it it was more just like an open mic for me on Instagram. Was it's like let me just try this out and see if people think it's decent. Was a lot of like the early stuff. I imagine when you're as good as impressions as you are, you're often asked to do them. But I just imagine at parties and whatnot, do people, because it's such a trick, it's like a fabulous gift that you have that you can pull it out. Does that get old in terms of just random people sort of trying to almost like treat you like a pony and be like, hey, do the blah, blah, blah? Um, no, I, it, I wish it did. I wish I wasn't such a like, I'll do anything, yeah. I think like initially at parties, my friend Ed Roast from Grizzly, he is the lead singer of Grizzly Bear. He'd always love when I would make them fillet. <laughs> like do like dirty or like, so it'd be like party, do real party tricks. And mm. so that is always fun. And I think like naturally the way I talk with my best friends, I'm all, we're always kind of like doing impressions of people. It's just like naturally our sense of humor. So it doesn't feel too like dance monkey yeah yeah is there a celebrity who is just your favorite person to impersonate uh i mean i do love meryl streep i gotta work on it i haven't done it in a long i haven't really like done a real meryl video i realized it's, it's been a long time far. i had to go yeah, back pretty she's far do she is due and i don't even have a costume like what am i doing and what is like i mean meryl's an interesting one because she's more different than the other women that we mentioned earlier in that she's a little bit less specific to nail. I think yeah. I'm not an impressionist, totally. but like, how do you approach the Meryl? And also it's just like, she's a big, it's big shoes to fill. She's fucking Meryl Streep. Yeah. Um, how do you approach that impression? I think I'm always like, what would be iconic? And I'm like, I don't care if people, if it's popular, like what's iconic. Hence like Catherine Zeta-Jones. I was like, I don't know if anyone except for like me and my best friend are obsessed with Casa Zeta-Jones. But to me, it's iconic. And uh, with Meryl, like, so iconic. And she is, she and my mom speak a little similar. So I was like, there's got to be a way I can, like, figure this out. They're both, like, waspy New Jersey women. Um, waspy Jew. Uh, that's, that's me. But I was raised way more Jewish. Anyway, with Meryl, it was a lot of watching tons of interviews. And then I, like, found the thing. I think it was like, I want to do this. I did that with Timothy Chalamet with Shia LaBeouf. I'm like, no one's doing this. Like, that would be iconic. And then I, I just study until I like find it. So I'm really interested in that study. Cause again, like getting into just like the art form of it all. So you're watching the videos. I mean, in the case of like a Meryl Streep, there's so much research to be watched and it's all mm -hmm. so fabulous. Are you watching it and sitting there and like you hear a line and you say it back or like, what does the, what does that, um, that research process sort of entail? It's usually me on my bed watching YouTube and like completely zoning out. Like, for Meryl, there was an interview, <laughs> so silly, with like the New York Philharmonic or like something, it was like the, it was like a talk in New York, not in the public theater, but some, oh, I think it was like the Lincoln Center. And she's talking about like music and, and her movie where she sings, Mother, not Mother, what was her movie where she sings? And it was Florence Foster Jenkins. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, so now I want to get into the wigs of it all. Because... I imagine, again, it's like, I went to theater school, but I'm not an actor, but I, I have a little bit of a, as a lover of wigs, as a lover of drag, as a lover of mm-hmm. transformation, I have a great appreciation for like the power of a wig. And I'm very, I'm compelled in finding someone like you who I also think feels that same way. What does putting on a wig do for you? Do you feel it instantly? I just like, I, I, I think about the Timothy Chalamet wig. Mm-hmm. And what I love about the Timothy Chalamet w- wig is it's not a perfect wig. That wig doesn't seem to no. be trying to be Timothy Chalamet. It's trying to be its own thing. And that's what I think lands so perfectly about it. But like, where are you, can you just like, first of all, where the love of wigs come from? And then like, where do you find these wigs? Where do you store them? Yeah, it's definitely like, I just, trans. I, I immediately am like, ooh, I'm this woman now. Mm. And I think, I just like being other people. Like, I don't like, even I think that goes back to like, the way I learned about acting was like playing a character. You're a character. It's not yourself. Maybe it's, an ex- but it's a character that maybe is an extension of yourself. So wigs are like a really cool way to be like, I'm not me anymore. And I like that transformation and I love the like Kate Blanchett of it all. I love Kate Blanchetting, you know? Um, yeah. And I think, you know, growing up in the Bay Area, like around the Castro and drag culture was everywhere. And San Francisco was like very different when I was in high school than it is now because like tech hadn't destroyed everything. So it was like a really eccentric city and everyone had fun wigs. I think my first wig I got at a drag store called Piedmont where it's like people go for like Burning Man or for drag. And it was like, whoo, I love this. And I also, yeah, I just, I don't, I, it's like a fetish kind of. <laughs> I love it. Where do you, where do you keep them? Um, right now I organized about 130 in the pandemic and they're in my boyfriend's uh, shed. But then because of work and like coming back to New York, I brought, I don't know, probably like 50. And then I'm debating about like getting a storage unit. Wow. Like a storage unit in general or a storage unit specifically for the wigs? For wigs and like some coats and some costumes, which I know I'm completely stealing from drag culture. I'm aware. I got the idea from a friend who did drag. And he's like, oh, you got to get like a storage. Like that's what all, that's what everyone does. And I was like, completely. what? Yeah, and it, like, unlocked, like, something. Speaking of drag, are you a RuPaul's Drag Race fan? I am, but not at the level that I should be. Fair fair (laughs) enough, fair enough. So speaking of fabulous wigs, your Carol Baskin impression caught the attention of the Tiger Queen herself, the star of Dancing with the Stars season 29. The star of Dancing with the Stars. Well, her and Chriselle. And Carol was not happy about your impression and said, quote, I could just slap that woman. That's what she said about you. I'm wondering if you have any response to Ms. Baskin. Oh, well, I think when I read the, because it was from a Dennis Quaid podcast, right? Oh, wow. (laughs) It was Dennis Quaid's pod. I'm really good friends with his son and his girlfriend. And so my friend Lizzie was like, you're not going to get over this. And then I saw it. Sorry, I have a mango in my mouth. Um, (laughs) 
But when you read it, the reason she wants to slap me is because she obviously is doing cameos. And in all the cameos, they're asking her to like do what I did on the at home thing, which was like riding around on my kitty cat bike. I'm a kitty cat. So she was like, she wants, they want me to say all these weird words. So I got a kick out of it. I'm sure it was like, <laughs> you know, like in, in jest. I should, I want to hear it. But yeah, I'm like, if we want to have a duel, you know. <laughs> that would be great. You know, I imagine after season 29 of Dancing with the Stars wraps up, she will likely have some free time. So hopefully the two of you yeah. can connect. Now, speaking of season 29 of Dancing with the Stars, what a cast, I'm just curious if you had to choose between Chriselle and Carol, who, who are you putting your money on? That's so hard. It depends on like what they do. Like if Carol pulls out tiger dancing, like mm-hmm. what are you, in her promo video with like the stuffed tiger, it's like, I couldn't even come up. That's perfect. Yeah. And you know, I, I got to respect her for her willingness to so full-throatedly lean into the thing, because I think there are a lot of people in a similar situation that sort of come up in, in such a way. And then and then they want nothing to do with that. They like make every effort to pivot. But I actually quite respect this idea of like, I'm going to give the people exactly what they want. Mm-hmm. And God bless. I won't be watching, but I'm, you know, <laughs> wishing her all the best. Now, some of these impressions like Timothy Chalamet and Britney Spears have made their way onto SNL. Can you walk us through how an idea gets pitched like that? How does it elevate from, let's say, an Instagram post all the way to SNL? I think it's definitely a combo of like a long typed out list of like, here's what I can do. And then it's always like, who's popular enough in the moment that people are going to like get it. Like I think stuff being topical, it's been a really eye opening and helpful lesson of keeping things. I think Kate McKinnon says a la momo. And so I always kind of think of like, it has to be like a la momo. And Carol Bassman was very like a la momo. But going back to the 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 Britney impression, I was yeah. listening to a podcast that I love called Legends Only. They're really, really big Britney fans. And they took issue with the impression. Their whole argument was that she is off limits to be made fun of because of her mental health. My impression was that you, I didn't think that the aspect of her that you were poking fun at was kind of similar to the Sarah Michelle Gellar, Drew Barrymore, Catherine, which is like, I could see Britney Spears finding that impression funny because I didn't yeah. think it was making fun of the any mental illness i think it was just making fun of her quirks as a person but i'm just wondering what your thoughts are because we talked about it earlier it's like you want to you are celebrating these people but there's obviously a lot of people that can perceive things to be the way that they see them right. do you have any response to that uh yeah i mean i think personally like i've gone through the britney journey like like cried when she came back and did circus and I feel so connected (laughs) like she's just like the person who I like have loved all my life and I think like the over babying of her like she's so controversial right now and I think obviously when we like did that on the show I felt like it was like there I didn't know about the conservatorship and I was a little bit in the dark about that stuff but I I personally like the tone of her Instagram, regardless of like your belief of like what's happening behind the scenes, like is her just like trying to laugh and have fun. And I feel like she burned out her gym. Yeah. She burned out her gym. And like, she is smarter, way smarter. I think than people give her credit for. I completely agree. I think I wanted to like celebrate Brittany rather than be like, Oh no, no, I just don't agree with that. And obviously I like have huge respect for, you know, mental health and but I do I think Britney's Instagram to me is just like a celebration maybe sometimes it like gets a little like whoa what's going on but 
I, I think I was trying to like lean into that as like a diehard Britney fan. Yeah. And yeah, if it was like in July after like more stuff had come out, we probably wouldn't have done it. But at the time, she just burned her gym down. I mean, I mean, it's just so good. I, I, I just want to highlight, I totally agree with something you just said, which is I think she is a lot smarter than people give her credit for. And I think sometimes the assumption that people have that she is not smart is actually worth sort of casting light back on those who sort of have that assumption about her. Yes. I mean, not to tangent into like a Britney deep dive, but I just think that she is a really fascinating figure in terms of a lot of those people that think that they are very pro Britney, her super fans, I think do a lot to infantilize her in ways yes. that are their own making. There's yes. just a lot of, what's the word when you like see, when you, casting, well, like- Yeah, projecting. Yeah, projecting, that's the word. So I want to go back to 2018 for a second. You had a little run-in with Tommy Laren. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I, I saw the video. At first I was like, oh, that can't be Chloe. That must be someone that looks like Chloe. Camera spins around. No, it's Chloe. How? It's Chloe. And I don't even actually know the answer to this. I mean, like what happened in that moment? How did you two meet? Yeah, so I was with uh, one of my best friends, Hannah Pilks, and we were, sometimes we partner up and try and, like, make ourselves run, because we become very LA girls, and so we are like, let's, let's just do the run, let's just, we'll just do the run, we'll feel better, even if it's for 10 minutes, let's just do the run, we, we definitely have that relationship that's great, so we were like, we'd put it off, it was like 9 o'clock at night, typical, and we were walking and not running, uh, very typical and then I just like saw Tommy Laren and she was on the corner in Silver Lake there's that like very millennial corner where intelligentsia is and Tommy for whatever reason had like parked herself to do to like find uh hipsters and like interview them and I just thought it was like and I got so starstruck like I I really do get starstruck in a crazy way and so I start shaking I tr truly like before I flew to New York the day before I saw dirt nasty on the street in Venice and I like was like just get a it's dirt nasty and I'm just get a picture of dirt. it's weird it's like me and my guy friends have always been obsessed with him and I could not bring myself to be like hey dirt <laughs> wait so so you see her you're mm -hmm. starstruck but somehow you are empowered enough to to walk over Yes, and then you're on camera. We, you're put on camera. Yes, because Hannah and I like take a longer walk. And she's like, just do it, do it, do it. And then I go back and they're like, hey, do you want to be interviewed? And like, I'll be honest, she was kind of a bit of a vision. Like her makeup. <laughs> and I feel like this about just the makeup of, the, of like the RNC. Like, obviously, I'm so problematic. Sorry, guys, not a Republican. But like the contour and the eyes and the lashes, I was just like, oh. She had so much makeup on and she was so thin and tan. And then I think I asked if she, like her thoughts on anal or butt stuff. <laughs> I have, it's really bad. I had already done an impression of her. I was so after the fact, everyone's like, why did you not do it to her face? Because that I think is such a hard thing to do. Fair. So you two are not friends. That was not like a, a moment of the, the meeting of the minds. That was just a random run-in. Yeah, it truly was. That is just so bizarre. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I want to ask about this bizarre season of SNL. In case you haven't heard, pandemic, you guys had to go mm. virtual. I, I, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I just can't imagine you get the biggest gig of your career, perhaps up to this point. Who knows? You know, you've got a lot of career left. But you get this huge gig and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, actually... We're going to do this from home. And I want to say to SNL's credit, what a remarkable way the show pivoted and figured out how to do it. And I think as, as a viewer of the show, it was really 
is cathartic the word? It felt good to see SNL in real time figuring out how to be funny and also sending the message that similarly to what the show did on September 11th, the, the show after yeah. that, kind of saying that we can still laugh. But what was it like for you on the inside still kind of being new to this beast that is SNL and then having this shift happen that's never happened before? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always coming back to being like, wow, this is such a historic moment in time and I'm so honored to get to be a part of it. And yeah, I I think maybe because I got to go back to LA for a second and have like a little bit of space and it was warmer, it felt kind of nice a little bit. But it, I think the thing that was the most incredible was like, even though we were at home, it still had the same like chaotic feeling of SNL. <laughs> Completely. And the workload. And I think that I found that really comforting. Love. I want to talk a little bit more about Sarah Michelle Geller before I get into yes. the final question. So SMG. just you. Yeah. SMG. So <laughs> first of all, did were there DMs exchanged or it was just what exactly went down between the two there of you? Were I know DMs. she commented, she reposted. Yes. So the origin of all of this was Jeremy O'Harris, who I worship. It's huge genius. Like texted me out of the blue while he's in London in the pandemic. And was like, I have this friend, like, it's her birthday. She loves you. Do you have a Sarah impression? And of course I didn't. But I was like, yeah, of course I do. Because I'll do anything for Jeremy. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. And then I, like, kind of put it off. But I treated it like homework. And so then I, it was initially purely for Jeremy in private. But then when I, like, worked on it a little bit more. And I, I had never seen her Instagram until he brought it up. And then I went on this, like, oh, my God, these tips are incredible. SMG tip of the day. When people ask your age, don't count this year. We're not using it. Quarantine. Then did the video and then she DM'd me and was hilarious and was like, am I crazy? Or like, gosh, am I really that? She was so funny and like just the best sport. And I love her. She's such an unproblematic fave. And I think part of why I loved your impression so much was it kind of highlighted just the quirk, the sincere quirkiness that is her. And yes. so it's just, I so appreciate the impression, but I also just so appreciate you putting her back in the zeitgeist because anytime, you know, anytime we are able to, as a fan community of Sarah Michelle Gellar, we are small but mighty. Anytime we are able to celebrate our queen, it's just, it's a win. It's a win. Yeah, great. Let's wrap up by talking about, I'm really interested in where your career is going to go from here, specifically if you are really going to pursue dramatic acting. You know, I love oh. your comedy so much, obviously, oh. but one of the things I really took away from watching, especially your early uh, clips on your Instagram, is how easily you sort of hover between drama and comedy. And I think some of my favorite dramatic actors are mainly regarded as comedians. I mean, I think really? a lot about, like yeah, who? I mean, well, like I'm always struck by Jim Carrey is a really great example yeah. in terms of someone who, before I saw his dramatic work, I only thought of him as a comedic actor. Yeah. And then was it was Truman Show like the first big dramatic outing? I don't fully remember, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the majestic. I mean, the mistakes yeah. have been made. But I think he's an example of someone who I only saw one way, and then I saw do come. Adam Sandler is another great example. Tish, baby. Hello, you know, keep Robin Williams, Juilliard. Totally. Do you have any aspirations to do dramatic work? Theater. Yeah, I mean, my big goal this summer was to somehow, like, walk on to Shakespeare in the Park. Like, do any part in Shakespeare in the Park. And I was to my agents, like, that's what I want. And they're like, what? And I was like, give me Oscar Eustace. Um, now, like, take me to the public. And now, obviously, that's not going to happen. But I do live really close to it. So I had this, like, fantasy of, like, I walk and I do my play. 
um, I am that person. Like, there's nothing better than a play and the work. So, yeah, I think theater would be, like, the first one. And Shakespeare in the Park has been, like, truly a lifelong dream, <laughs> if that says anything. Yeah, I think getting back to dramatic stuff would be great. I always like a dark comedy. Let me wrap by asking you, what makes you laugh? Women. <laughs> Same. Period. Yeah. Women make me laugh. Meltdowns make me laugh. Stupid names. Like early MTV stuff will always make me laugh. Actresses make me laugh. I don't know. I've never had to define it. I think I'm always like, but yeah, I guess like women. <laughs> and when was the last time, if you remember, that you had, because it's like, I'm really interested in the times that we're living in right now, um, finding laughter. Do you remember the last time that you had just a tremendous fit of laughs? Yeah, it was like early, maybe it was like before the pandemic. I mean, I've had a good amount of laughs, but like one time, my two best friends came over and we were kind of tired and we're like, let's make a video. And we were like, what's about, I don't know. And then we just put on wigs and made like a musical about the mall. It was just so bad. Like, I think when something is so terrible and so bad, I like cried laughing. And then during the pandemic, my dad somehow weaseled his way into a Groundlings improv Zoom class with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like, I really like, I just like improv and I was like, this is something to do. I'll like keep myself like limber. And he joined the improv class with my teacher who I love, Annie Sertich. And that was just insane. Also to have like your dad be the actual like creepy old man in an improv class and you're like on Zoom and you can't look away. It was very funny. I love that. I want to thank you so much for your time. I am such a tremendous fan of yours. I think you are such a bright spot, not just on SNL, not just in the comedy scene, just in this world. You make me laugh so much. And I just love this shared connection that we have both for female actresses, for women, and specifically- For Shia, for- (laughs) For Shia, yeah. We we also, I think we have similar tastes in men. We do. We we have similar tastes in women and men, and I think it's an honor to be with you right now. (laughs) I love that. Well, thank you so much. I'm wishing you all the best. Of course. Shut up, Evan. 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 Shut Up Evan is produced by Matt Storm, with associate production by Ryan Killian Krauss, and social media by Sean Ross. An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters, without whom none of this would be possible. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.